Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. He looked at me and he said, you know, Lee, when you get to the end of your life and all is said and done, you will never regret being courageous for Christ. Welcome to the Elisa Childers Podcast. My guest today needs no introduction. He's a former investigative journalist from the Chicago Tribune who, as an atheist, put the claims of Christianity to the test. He investigated those claims and then became a Christian at the age of 29. And since then, he's written tons of books, including the classic The Case for Christ, which, of course, was made into a movie. And actually, he wrote a book called The Case for the Real Jesus that was particularly influential when God was reconstructing my faith, and I was coming out of a faith crisis. It was so helpful to me. So I am so excited to introduce you. He's the the GOAT apologist, the greatest of all time, (laughs) Lee Strobel. Lee, how are you? I'm doing great. So great to be with you, to finally meet you, uh, sort of. Um, We've communicated uh, through the years, and I was so honored to write the forward to your fantastic book, um, that looks into um, progressive Christianity and the pitfalls of that and so forth. So yeah. I'm a big fan of you and oh. what you're doing. And so I'm grateful to be here. Well, I'm thrilled to finally have you on the podcast. You know, for the longest time, I just thought, well, I wouldn't be able to get Lee Strobel to come on the podcast. <laughs> and so here you are. So that's great. And I mentioned earlier that you need no introduction, but I certainly did. So I was so thankful that you agreed to write the forward for another gospel. So thank you so much for doing that. Oh, it was my honor. I think it's a, a, one of the most important books that came out all year. Oh, um, truly, you. truly. It's so timely. And uh, I've encouraged so many people to read it. And I'm glad your curriculum's coming out. 
year. Yes, that's so everybody yeah. can be looking for that this summer. I was telling uh, Lee before we came on the air that we recorded the video portion for the curriculum this past week. And it, I mean, I was just blown away with how beautiful it looks. It's just aesthetically so beautiful. And I'm thrilled with the content. So I'm excited for churches to be able to go through a six-week series to study through the book. Um, I think it's, I hope it'll be really helpful for people. Um, but enough about my book. I want to talk about your new book. You've just written a book called The Case for Heaven, and right. it's a really fascinating book. And I think that what you frame really well in the book is how closely the doctrines of heaven and the doctrine of hell are tied together. The, yeah. You just kind of can't have one without the other. And today right. I thought it would be really interesting, not just interesting, but also kind of necessary if we just f kind of focus in on hell. I mean, that's not something a lot of people want to do a whole podcast on. It's <laughs> not something that you typically think, yeah, let's talk about hell. But I think it's really important because it's one of those, uh, those teachings that is falling by the wayside. It's being misunderstood. It's being misarticulated in a lot of cases. I listen to a lot of the deconstruction stories of people who deconvert from Christianity or end up in a broader spirituality or more of a progressive Christianity. And that idea of hell is almost always the first domino to fall. If we look at the you know, core essential doctrines of Christianity like a line of dominoes, it's either hell or the Bible that's that mm -hmm. first one that starts to knock all the other ones down. And I, and I understand it. I mean, we, we think about hell. It's, it's not easy to think about hell. It's not pleasant. And it yeah. can be tempting to just kind of say, okay, we'll just get rid of that. But you make a really robust case for the existence of hell and the nature of hell. Why do you mm -hmm. think hell is something that's important for Christians to think about and to talk about? Well, because it is an emotional issue, it can lead people to um, uh, use their preferences uh, to parse through scripture and reach a conclusion that they want to reach as opposed to what the Bible is teaching. So I think the authority is not our emotions. The authority is the Bible. And um, um, so I thought I can't do a book on the afterlife and ignore uh, the issue of hell. I even have a chapter on um, uh, reincarnation because there's, you know, hundreds of millions of people that believe in reincarnation. So I try to kind of cover the bases. But, um, you know, I think this is an area, you know, you talk in your book about how progressive Christianity uh, dilutes the gospel and distorts the gospel. And this is an area, as you say, that is uh, often um, a victim of that. And it is difficult, let's face it. But I think there's a lot of misconceptions about hell yes. that, um, that unfortunately magnify that in many people's minds. Yeah, and I want to get to some of those misconceptions because I wrote about some of those in my book. I had misconceptions yeah. about hell, yeah, me too. either based on traveling church plays or maybe Dante's Inferno or whatever yeah. it might have been that came, you know, came across my right. path that helped inform even Hollywood movies. I think helped yeah. inform my view of that. So we're going to get into some of that, but I want to lay a good foundation first. And so mm -hmm. I think in order to even meaningfully talk about the afterlife, we have to talk about the existence of the supernatural. We have to establish, yeah. you know, you're, you're like treating this like an investigative journalist. And so we have to talk about the soul because I know yeah. in a lot of circles, um, there's really not, and I think you make this point in your book, there's really not been a credible mechanism submitted that can yeah. explain how even how consciousness came to be for the first exactly. time. And so it seems like more scientists are finding ways to explain what we might call the soul, but they're conflating it with the brain. They're saying the mind and the brain are the same thing. The soul doesn't exist. It's just lights out when we die. Right. 
So what it, is there evidence for the soul? What, what did you find in your investigations? Yeah, there are a lot of materialists, those people who believe that uh, all that there is in the universe is that which we can see uh, see and touch and that the supernatural or um, uh, things like that cannot exist. And who will say that we are only our brains, we're just our brains. And they will say that consciousness is either an illusion or somehow in some totally unexplained way that nobody can figure out, uh, grows out of the complexity of the human brain. Um, or everything is actually conscious, which we can't be can't be proven, and and, and is scientifically uh, kind of an absurd position, I think. Um, um, so I I interviewed a, a neuroscientist who has a PhD from Cambridge University. Uh, her name is Dr. Sharon Dierks. She actually wrote a book called "Am I Just My Brain?" Mm. or "Are You Just Your Brain?" something like that. And uh, the answer is a robust, no, you're not just your brain. You are a body and a soul. Well, how do we know? Well, one of the things she said is that uh, despite what you see and hear sometimes in the media, there have been no discoveries of modern neuroscience that have disproven the existence of the soul. That's an important point. The other thing she says is, um, you know, for uh, if the consciousness uh, is the same as the, uh, or our soul or spirit, is the same as our physical brain, then there would be no differences between the two. They would be identical. Mm. And yet, she says, here's a thought experiment. Imagine a woman named Mary. Mary is the world's leading expert on vision. Oh, nobody understands vision better than Mary. She understands the physics of vision. She understands the chemistry of vision. She understands how the eye is structured. She understands how the optic nerve carries impulses. She understands how the brain translates those into images. She, more than anybody on planet Earth, understands what how vision works, but she's blind. Mm. What, what if one day she suddenly received her vision? At that moment that she received her vision, would she learn anything new about vision? Oh, yeah, of course, she'd be able to see. And so uh, her point is that, therefore, um, um, uh, our brain cannot uh, accomplish, uh, uh, explain everything. The physical nature of our brain um, and our vision cannot explain everything. The, it can't explain the first-person experience of vision. And so there must be distinct from each other. Um, and, and so even though the brain neuroscientists like her map electrical activity in the brain based on thoughts and things that people are going through, they can do that, but that correlates to thoughts. They can't, scientists can't look inside of your mind. Mm. They can't see your thoughts. You have to articulate them. And so her point is there's a distinction therefore between our consciousness or our mind and our physical brain. And she makes other points as well. But I, I especially like that analogy of Mary the scientist because um, uh, it just shows that the experience of vision is not reducible to the physical brain. You can understand the structure of the eye. You can understand how the brain works. That doesn't get you to the first person experience of vision. Yeah. And science actually can't get us everywhere. I think that's a misunderstanding that's a lot of people have. They think that science really is this discipline that is there to explain all of reality. Right. And it's right. really, it has limits, doesn't it? Can we talk it a little bit about the limits of science, especially when it comes to the supernatural? 
That's right. I mean, science can tell us certain things, but often, you know, science uh, gets overturned over a period of time because part of the scientific method is to continue to experiment and um, replicate um, uh, theories and, and, and prove theories and so forth. Um, and we see many things through the years that have been turned upside down. Science was wrong. Uh, plate tectonics uh, didn't really come into um, understanding until the second half of the 20th century. Um, so there's there's lots of theories, theory about fire and how fire worked has changed throughout history. So, you know, and that's good. Science adjusts and science responds to experimentation and so forth. Um, but science can't tell us everything. Um, it, there are certain things that we learn uh, through our senses, through um, a, a philosophy and so forth. Mm-hmm. And when when we talk about the existence of the soul, one of the really interesting lines of investigation that I've sort of had my eye on over the past few years, and you address it in your book too, is this idea of near-death experiences, or as you even put right. in your book, sometimes right. they're death experiences. These are people who have flatlined yes. or their hearts have stopped. They've been uh, declared clinically dead by doctors, right. and right. then they they come back and they share stories about what happened uh, in, that, in that time. Talk about near-death experiences and why you think those are such convincing and compelling evidence for the soul. I think they're exactly that. They're convincing and compelling. And here's why. I began as a skeptic. Um, I thought near-death experience, come on, that, those are hallucinations. Those, that's the last gasps of a dying brain. Um, uh, and yet I found very quickly there are 900 scholarly articles published in scientific and medical journals over the last 40 years investigating near-death experiences. This is a very well investigated area of science. In fact, the Lancet, which is the prestigious medical journal in England, um, carried an article in which it showed that none, none of the alternative explanations to near-death experiences can fully account for what takes place. Mm. Uh, so now, you know, I'm a skeptic uh, and I thought, well, um, I'm only going to accept that which I can corroborate. So someone says, oh, I died and I met Jesus and he's five foot ten, has brown eyes. I don't know. I don't know. There are people have lied about that. There was a famous case where a guy wrote a book about that based on his kid's testimony about having died and met Jesus and a movie was made of it. And then the kid later said, yeah, I made it all up. Yeah. I, I can't corroborate that. But in my book, I do corroborate multiple cases, multiple cases in which people, you know, the Bible says that at our point of death, our soul, our spirit separates from our physical body and either goes to be in the intermediate state uh, with Jesus in a place of paradise or separated from him in a place called Hades. Um, so does our spirit, does our soul separate from our body at the time of death? Well, we have corroboration where people see things or hear things during this out-of-body experience that were impossible for them to see or hear if indeed they didn't have an authentic near-death experience. So I'll give you an example. Uh, Maria dies in the hospital of a heart attack. And yet she says later, I was conscious the whole time. My spirit floated up. I watched the resuscitation efforts. And then my spirit floated out of the ceiling and out of the hospital. And then when it returned to her body and she was revived, she said, oh, by the way, on the roof of the hospital on the third story landing, there's a tennis shoe and it's a man's shoe and it's left footed and it's dark blue and it has some wear over the little toe and the uh, shoelace is tucked under the heel. <laughs> they go up and they look and sure enough, it's there exactly as she said. 
Now, that's hard to explain if indeed she didn't have an authentic out-of-body experience. Uh, or another example, one researcher studied 21 cases of people who were blind at the time they had their near-death experience. Um, half of them or so were blind since birth, and yet they could see during their near-death experience. Vicki Umapeg, 26 years old, killed in a car accident. She said later, I was conscious the whole time. I, I saw the resuscitation of her. She had never seen a shadow in her entire life. And yet she's watching resuscitation. I saw people, I saw plants, I saw birds, I saw the sky, I saw all these things. I even met dead relatives. And, and, um, and yet when her spirit, her soul, her consciousness returned to her body and she was revived, her vision disappeared. One medical researcher said, this is medically impossible. Uh, in one case, they studied almost 100 cases of people in near-death experiences who made verifiable observations that they had during their near-death experience. A remarkable 92% were absolutely 100% accurate. Another 6% were almost 100% accurate. So this is an incredible record of accuracy for people who see and hear things that they otherwise couldn't have seen or heard. But Elisa, here's what especially impressed me. I have a chapter in which I interviewed John Burke. John Burke is a Christian pastor of a large church in Austin, Texas. In fact, I've been friends with John for about 30 years. He and I were pastors at a church uh, many, many years ago together. And uh, he is also a near-death researcher. And he studied um, a thousand near-death experiences over 35 years. And his conclusion is that when you look at what actually occurs in a near-death experience, not how people interpret it and, and put it through their worldview um, prism, but how, what actually takes place, it is consistent with Christian theology. And he backs that up verse by verse. Uh, now, it's important to understand that, that when people have a near-death experience, they're, they're clinically dead. Some of them are in the morgue. Um, yeah. so one person was being wheeled into the morgue and she'd been declared dead. And, and yet she wakes up and she said, I was, I was conscious the whole time. She said, by the way, um, the doctors were, she repeated some jokes the doctors told while they were trying to resuscitate her um, in order to reduce the tension in oh. the room. She described the ties that they were wearing. I mean, so these people are clinically dead, no brain waves, no detectable brain waves, no breathing, no heartbeat. And yet, um, they're not irrevocably dead. They're not permanently dead. So the Bible says that, that um, we are appointed once to die, and then the judgment. Doesn't mean immediately the judgment, it just means after that, the judgment. Now, um, these people are not permanently dead. They're going to come back. And so that explains a lot in terms of the consistency between these experiences and uh, what the Bible teaches. Uh, because about 24% are bad experiences. They're horrific. They're hellish yeah. experiences. Um, and like, for instance, Howard Storm, who was an atheist professor at a secular university uh, who died and um, um, was absolutely ripped to shreds. He said, I was reduced to roadkill by demons. Uh, he said they, they tore off his ear. They gouged out his eye. They, he said no horror film could ever capture the, the depth of their cruelty. And in the midst of it, he called out to Jesus, Jesus, save me, save me. And Jesus came and rescued him from this. Oh. this. This was such a powerful experience that when he was finally revived, he not only renounced his atheism, he not only became a Christian, but he became an ordained pastor. And to this day is the pastor of a small church in rural, I believe it's Oklahoma. Um, but here's my point. 
Jesus rescued him after his death. Well, is that biblical? Um, but it wasn't his irrevocable death. He, he was clinically dead. Um, and so it would make sense that this would be um, something that would be consistent. He called out to God and God responded. Uh, in fact, there's several cases where people call out to God in a near-death experience and God responds. Um, but they're not irrevocably dead. So yeah. I think that's the difference. Yeah, yeah. Now, I would imagine that you've by now had the chance to read some of the skeptical pushback on NDEs. Because I, I, I imagine not every atheist out there is like, oh, okay, sold. You know, I'm going to believe in the soul now. So what, what is some of the pushback that, that the study of NDEs receives, in particular, maybe even you and your book? Well, it, you know, it's interesting that um, I have one case in my book, uh, Pamela Reynolds' case, which uh, where all the blood was drained from her head during a surgery uh, for a brain aneurysm. And uh, yet she made observ verifiable observations that were confirmed later. And the Christian philosopher J.P. Moreland, who you probably know or know mm -hmm. of, a very, very um, renowned Christian philosopher, uh, said, based on this one case, I think any reasonable seeker of truth would conclude that God exists, that heaven is real. And, and, and you know, I, I, he said, just this one case. Um, so I think these cases are powerful. The, the main pushback you get is that perhaps these are like hallucinations or something. Well, that doesn't explain. Look at the Lancet article, which I cite in my book. Um, it says, no, these, are, these can't be hallucinations because of these corroborated um, experiences that people have. In other words, um, a, a hallucination can't explain how you get a perspective from above looking down on people trying to resuscitate you. Yeah. Um, that hallucinations. So I've had hallucinations. I almost died 10 years ago. I had hyponatremia, which is a um, severe drop in blood sodium level. And uh, before I went unconscious, almost died from it. I had some hallucinations. Um, hallucinations are fleeting. They're confusing. They're um, uh, kind of shallow kind of experiences. Um, Near-death experiences are profound and, and, and uh, they have, they, they're continuous and they're deep and they change lives like Howard Storm I mentioned. So these are not fleeting, shadowy kind of hallucinations. These are experiences of people, as you said, who are not really near dead. They are clinically dead in many cases. Yeah, and that's what's so compelling to me about the study of NDEs. Back when I first started hearing about it was because when I first started hearing about it, I was like, oh, come on, that's just like the kid who said he went to heaven or whatever. And, yeah. But I mean, it's it's the corroboration that is so powerful. Even in the book, you, you tell one of the stories where the I think it was a woman who floated up and she actually described a sticker that was on yeah. the top of the ceiling fan that you wouldn't have ever seen unless you were above the ceiling fan. And then That's they checked right. and there it was. I yeah. mean, that you, you can't make that stuff up. You it's, can't. And, and I really conclude based on that kind of corroboration that beyond a reasonable doubt, near-death experiences establish that indeed our consciousness, our spirit, our soul does continue after, to be conscious after our uh, clinical death. Now, how long? We can't say from near-death experience. I take a minimalist approach. I just say it just shows that for a period of time, at least, this is all I think it demonstrates, for a period of time, our consciousness does continue. But I think that's powerful because it's confirmatory of what the Bible teaches, first of all. And second of all, it 
would then establish that at least for a period of time, uh, there is some sort of afterlife. And I believe it points um, um, so powerfully in the same direction that the Bible points that we can then use that to help corroborate what the Bible teaches. So you mentioned that uh, these stories, as they come out, uh, they have so much in common with Christian theology. Can you give us some examples of that? Yeah. um, uh, I'll give you one example about how we have to look at what actually occurs as opposed to how people interpret it. For instance, uh, there are people um, in other countries uh, who, like, for instance, a woman who had a near-death experience, she dies, and there's a man in white holding a book. She is a Hindu. She interprets that. Oh, that's the book of karma. That's that. You know that. That's the. You know we're going to figure out what you need to do. The Lord of Karma. Uh, you know. Um, well, okay. It could also be the Bible talks about a book and talks about a man in white, and so it's consistent with Christian theology yeah. too. Um, if, if, but it depends on what worldview you look at it. But if you look at uh, again the common core of what takes place. Um, and you look at, and John Burke has researched the percentages of people who say they go through a tunnel, they, uh, they meet deceased relatives, they uh, encounter a being of light uh, and love, and they, they feel this sense of love that they've never felt before. Um, these various uh, phenomena that, that are common to near-death experiences, uh, John Burke in his research, and he wrote a book called Imagine Heaven that goes into even more detail, um, that he, he just backs it up verse by verse to show consistency between these experiences and the um, um, uh, teachings of Scripture. Very good. All right. Well, I think that that really, for me, just it's such a good case for the existence of the soul, for the existence of life yeah. beyond this one, the supernatural. We are not just physical matter. The 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 it's just there's more, right? There's yeah. just more. And when that, you know, then we have to deal with heaven and hell. We have to yeah. deal with where does a soul actually go after yes. death? And so uh, I, we're going to swing around to heaven toward the end, but I, I, I want to spend some time talking about hell and the nature of yeah. hell, maybe clear some misconceptions. Maybe, yeah. um, maybe for some people, they haven't thought very deeply about hell, and it will be a little troubling because we're going to think about the nature of hell. But maybe let's start with this. What is hell? What, what is it? Well, you know, the Bible uses imagery and metaphors and figurative language to try to communicate the horror of hell, which is separation from God for eternity. Um, uh, So it uses imagery of, for instance, fire and darkness. Well, if you took those literally, the uh, fire would light up the darkness and you wouldn't have darkness. So these are, these are figurative terms that the Bible uses to try to communicate. This is the worst possible experience that you could ever find yourself in. Um, so uh, even Martin Luther, even the uh, reformers and others uh, agreed. The, the, these are metaphors. This is figurative language to try to communicate the horror of hell. Um, but there's so many misconceptions, as you say. For instance, people say, oh, uh, God, why would a loving God send people to hell? He doesn't send people to hell. We, we consign ourselves to hell. Uh, God offers redemption and eternal life uh, to anyone, anywhere, in any culture, at any time that reaches out to him and calls out to him um, for redemption. Um, he will find some way to provide it, I believe. Uh, and yet, um, um, some people uh, turn that down. Some people walk the other way. Uh, and they, uh, you know, uh, 
for some people, the ugly truth is heaven would be hell mm-hmm. because they hate the idea of God. There was one yes. Satanist who actually um, tattooed the cross of Christ on the bottom of his foot so that he could step on it every time he took a step just because he hated the idea of God. By the way, he read my book, Gates for Christ, and is now a pastor in Wisconsin. Oh. Uh, but for that, you know, it's an example of someone who hated the idea of God. The other misconception, I think, is that um, uh, there's torture. God is, it's a torture chamber. No, uh, torture is externally applied. Um, there is torment, which is, you know, a gnashing of teeth and anger, a sense of uh, just um, uh, that, that, that people have in hell. But I think the most profound thing I learned that really changed my perspective, because you, you say, is this fair that, mm-hmm. that, that they're consigned to this place for eternity and so forth? Um, um, you know, and, and the Bible says in Genesis, will not the God of all the earth do what's right and do what's fair? And, and so one of the things I think that most people don't understand is that hell is not a one size fits all experience. Um, yeah. Adolf Hitler is not going to have the same experience in hell as maybe my neighbor who hates the idea of God as an atheist and, and, um, um, rejects God and runs the other way from him, lives a totally immoral life. He, he his experience in hell is going to be different. How do we know? Well, Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, uh, talks about certain cities that would suffer more than others uh, because they refused to repent despite the miracles that he had performed in those cities. Um, and so, uh, some are going to suffer more than others. In Luke chapter 12, he tells a, a parable about the servant who knows his master's will and yet doesn't do it, that he's going to suffer more than the one who didn't really know the master's will, um, and, and pursued, you know, something counter to his master's, uh, um, uh, good interests. Um, there'll be a difference in the way in which they are punished. And I think this is really important to, to, to see that um, whatever hell is, um, it's not going to be the same for Adolf Hitler and everybody else. Uh, there will be gradations of experience. I don't know what that looks like. I just know that this imagery of hell, uh, of flames, of um, um, darkness and so forth, uh, suggests a the worst possible outcome for a human being uh, to be separated from any influence of the love of God. You know, we live in a difficult world. We live in a world where there's a lot of evil and a lot of pain. And, you know, so how would you like to be in a place because we experience some of the, the you know, the, the grace of God, the, the, the general grace of God in our world? Um, how would you like to be separated from any influence of God's love and grace forever? I mean, that's a, it's a horrible prospect. And I think that's what the Bible is trying to communicate. It's like if you have a little kid and the kid reaches up and he's going to touch a hot um, burner on a stove. You might say to him, don't, don't touch it. That's hotter than the sun. Well, no, it's not. I'm using figurative language, but I'm trying to tell him, you don't want to touch that. It is so hot. It's going to burn you. And, and so the Bible uses these metaphors, these figurative language to suggest that um, this is the worst outcome that a human being can face. And I think sometimes people might be tempted to feel some relief over the fact that those are metaphors. I remember uh, mm. the first time I read about that, and yeah. at first it was like, oh, okay, I, I kind of feel a sense of relief. But then it was like, but we really shouldn't feel a sense of relief because that's just the strongest language that that we can understand to communicate right 
how horrific it will be to be outside of, like, as you mentioned, any kind of goodness or love or yeah. hope because we only know what those things are because, like you said, we all experience that common grace. We all yes. know the love. We know love. We know hope. We all kind of have a sense of hope. And to imagine an existence that's completely devoid, really, of the goodness and love of God yeah. is is indescribably really horrific to think about. Yes, and um, it shouldn't really bring us a ton of relief to know that that that's a metaphorical type of, of uh, right. analogy there. Right. But I think the, the fairness of God can be seen in the yes. fact that people will now all be treated alike, that they'll be treated uh, commensurate with, um, uh, with who they are and what they've done. Yeah, and I think that solves one of the big misconceptions about hell when you talk about the degrees of punishment, because yeah. and that by, is backed up even uh, by the Old Testament systems where different sins had different punishments. They had different yeah. degrees of punishment. I mean, it's a very consistent theme right. when we look at the justice of God as it's portrayed to us through the Bible. Um, yeah. But I think that does clear up one of the misconceptions people might have. A lot of people I've even experienced, uh, when they'll talk about hell, they think, oh, you know, so my sweet little grandma, who was a Unitarian or whatever, she's going to get the same thing as Hitler. That's not fair. Well, that's what we're saying. No, that isn't fair. Right. And that doesn't line up with what's being taught in the Bible about it. Yeah. And uh, I think digging a little deeper theologically into the doctrine of hell can help people maybe clear some of those obstacles and some of those misconceptions. Another misconception I had, and maybe you can speak to this growing up, was that people in hell were really repentant. I would yeah. think about people who, you know, and part of that's from a traveling church play that I saw as a young child where, you know, this, I remember this car of teenagers got in a car accident and they were all drinking and, and, um, they die, and then the devil comes to take, drag them off to hell, which is also another misconception because the devil's not like in charge, like he's the right. mayor of hell having a great yeah. time. Right. But yeah. you know, as they're being dragged off to hell, this one girl, and I just remember feeling chills to the just to my bones when she was like, "Why didn't you tell me the gospel, Lord? You know, I want to be a Christian." And and I always thought, "Oh, that's that's so horrible," because we yeah. think like people in hell really wish that that. That they would have made a different decision, but uh, maybe you can speak to that a little bit. Yeah, I actually talk about this in my book. Um, I interview Paul Copan, who's a, a prominent Christian philosopher who gets into this issue in more depth than we'll be able to. But I think one of the keys to this idea um, um, is that, uh, you know, the Bible talks about gnashing of teeth. I think part of that is it's anger, because if you look at uh, Stephen while he was being stoned to death, they gnashed their teeth. They were angry at Stephen. They hated Stephen. They, 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 they were going to punish Stephen. They, and, and I think uh, the gnashing of teeth, a good part of that in hell, is a continued sense of rebellion and hatred and um, a rejection of God and anger toward God. Um, uh, you know, as one theologian once told me, he said, heaven is, uh, hell is not about a bunch of blokes who are really pretty good guys, but uh, they're just... Um, God's not good enough or nice enough to let them out. That's not what it's about. These are people who continue to rebel and uh, want their own way and um, to reject God's um, uh, lordship over their life. And would you say that that 
sort of speaks to the nature of one one of the misconceptions I think is when people start using words like torture or hell is like a torture yeah. chamber, yeah. Um, and and yet we talk about hell as it's eternal. Yeah. There's torment, and you're conscious. So yeah. what is that torment versus torture? How could we clear that misconception up for people a little bit? Yeah, yeah I think the idea that torture is externally applied, it is um, uh, something that um, I would take great pleasure perhaps in inflicting pain on somebody else. That's not what God is about. Um, but torment uh, comes from within in, in terms of the biblical description. And so, you know, this is a, a sense of um, a continued um, 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 being consumed by um, rejection of God, hatred of God, um, um, and and that brings a sense of um, of torment to the individual. Yeah, and in the book, you use the analogy of of Gollum from Lord of the Rings. Yeah, to describe yeah. that that People sort of there. over a period of time, they very well lose even perhaps the image of God in them. They're reduced to a crisp of mm-hmm. what um, humanity is. And uh, yeah, Paul Copan goes into some detail about that. It's pretty compelling. Yeah. Well, and I just definitely, once again, want to just tell everyone, go get this book. It's really fascinating. It's not your typical book on heaven. It goes into into deep theology, even about hell. And I want to talk specifically about a trend we're seeing right now in uh, even apologetic circles and Christian circles. And I just want to say right off the bat, I know that, you know, people are going to email me because we're talking about this. I want you to know, everyone who's watching, if you hold to what we're going to talk about, because we, we disagree with it, but if you, if you hold to it, we love you. We're not, you're not against you. We're not calling you a heretic, but I I do think it's worth talking about. And that's this trend we're seeing toward a, a doctrine called conditional immortality, or sometimes it's called annihilationism. And uh, yeah. first, tell, give us a definition of what that teaching is, and yeah. then in your you investigated it, and so I'd like to hear how you you know went about that and and what your conclusion was. Yeah, it's common called annihilationism, and essentially the there's a kind of a range of beliefs about it, but it's it's either the fact that uh, at the time of death the the unrepentant do not spend eternity uh, conscious in hell, but they are snuffed out of existence by God, so to speak, perhaps after a short period of punishment, but uh, they're snuffed out of existence. And uh, John Stott, who was kind of the evangelical pope of the 20th century, one of the most prominent evangelical leaders of our time, uh, who I got to know a bit and um, just incredible mind, Became, came to believe in annihilationism before he died and uh, shocked the evangelical world when he wrote about it. Um, so I think it's a secondary issue. I don't think it, I don't, I, I agree with Paul Copan when I interviewed him. He said, you know, if John Stott buys into it, I don't want to use the word heresy. <laughs> um, so it's a secondary issue. And here's the point I would make about annihilationism. You know what? I went into it with an open mind. And I'm telling you, I was surprised how strong the case can be built for annihilationism. When you really look at it, it's a pretty darn strong case, but I believe it falls short. I believe that a thorough exegesis of the relevant verses does not support annihilationism, but they can make a pretty darn good case. Um, and, you know, I, I was interviewed by a journalist for a secular publication who said, you know, off the record, I won't say who he was. He said, uh, um, I'm an annihilationist and thank you for presenting our position in a thorough 
an accurate and responsible way in your book. I get you don't buy into it. I, I get that it fell short in your eyes, but thank you for spelling it out. And I took that as a compliment. I, I do spell it out and what the biblical evidence is for it. And then I critique it and I agree yeah. with some of it, but I disagree. And so does Paul Copan with enough of it that we would certainly not endorse it as being uh, an orthodox view. Now, Bart Ehrman, the famous um, agnostic uh, New Testament scholar, believes Jesus was an annihilationist. Um, so uh, <laughs> you have you have a you talked about an increasing trend. That's exactly true. Uh, there are a lot, uh, there are some pastors. I don't know how many, but they are secret annihilationists who don't want to say that they're annihilationists because they're afraid they're going to get fired. Um, and in some denominations, they probably would get fired. Um, so it, it's it's a popular view that's bubbling under the surface of evangelicalism. And I would just encourage people, read the chapter, look at the verses on the other side, and I think you'll come to the conclusion that, yeah, they can make a pretty good case, but not a ultimately convincing one. Yeah, and I remember working my way through that early on as well, because for me, it was not that difficult to see it as uh, a secondary issue. And by secondary issue, yeah. you know, doesn't mean that's not a very important issue. It doesn't right. just mean, oh, it's True. secondary. It just means it's, you know, it's it's not like it's, you're going <laughs> to, this is kind of odd to say, but you're not going to go to hell for believing in that. Um, yeah. uh, but for me, really what it came down to that where it really would cross the lines of heresy would be to say that there that hell doesn't exist or that there isn't a literal place called hell. And people who affirm annihilationism are affirming that there is a literal place called hell. They're just going to argue about the duration and perhaps the nature right. of the punishment that that happens there. But but like you, I I landed uh, on the view that we call eternal conscious torment. That's the view I argue for in my book. Yeah. And but uh, you know that said, uh, we 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 both. Both know wonderful Christian people who disagree with us on yeah. that, but um, yeah. but for me, I just wanted to I wanted to kind of present what I you know believe is the is the historic view. You quote several uh, you you um, name several church early church fathers who held to eternal conscious torment, and um, I mean it's difficult. It's a difficult thing to think about, even for me. Like I yeah. I think if I were going to choose. I don't want there to be a hell. I don't want there to be an eternal conscious torment. But I also have very limited wisdom. I can't remember who the theologian was, but they said, if if I had God's power, I would change all kinds of things. But if I had his wisdom, I wouldn't change anything. Yeah, that's a good way to put it, that, that I think on the day of judgment, when they're heaven and hell are in the balance, and we see... Um, the reality of what sin is and what it does. And when we, we see what rebellion against God really has been, and we see God's love and his grace and how it was offered to people. I mean, I think no one in history is going to be able to legitimately shake their fist at God and say that was unfair. Yeah, We will all, I believe, ultimately see the fairness of what God has set forth. That's good. So if somebody dies and they go to hell... Can they repent and get back out? No, I don't believe so. Um, I, you know, there's nothing in Scripture that would suggest that. Uh, the Bible says in Hebrews, we're appointed once to die and then the judgment, and, and that determines ultimately our fate. Um, so, uh, I, no, I don't believe. However, I will say this. I explore this in my book. There's a new book out by University Academic, a, you know, a legitimate Christian evangelical publisher called A Postmortem Opportunity. 
And the question that's raised, and I, I, I explore this in my book, is whether Martin Luther was right that some people might find redemption after they die. Martin Luther, in some letters, opened the door to that possibility. And, um, you know, it's, it's, an, it's speculative. But on the other hand, there are some things that point in that direction. For instance, what about um, someone who's never heard the gospel? Um, they, they live in a place where the gospel is never articulated. What about people who lived in Nazi Germany, Jews who were given a false gospel, who were told that the Nazis represent Jesus and, 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 and Christianity, a false gospel? What about children who die before the age of accountability? Um, um, so perhaps certain people might be given one opportunity to, after death, hear the gospel and uh, make a choice. Um, I can't say for sure. I haven't read this new book. I've got it. I, I ordered it. I want to read it by a scholar that really explores this. Uh, but Paul Copan in my book, um, I think gives it um, some really good treatment. Um, we're not buying into it necessarily, but we're saying this is speculation needs to be further explored theologically. Um, you know, the Bible says in Hebrews, as I said, we're pointing once to die and then the judgment, but doesn't mean immediately the judgment. Um, uh, especially when you look at the next verse, which talks about uh, two events that happen in sequence, and there's 2,000 years between the two of them. So it, there could be, you know, t time between the, the two, um, death and ultimate judgment. And, and perhaps some people, and I'm not talking about people uh, who have heard the gospel um, and chose to walk the other way from God during their lifetime. I, I, you know, the, the belief of those who endorse this would not include them getting a second shot. But a first shot for those who never heard it or children who died before they were or mentally disabled who were not able to understand the gospel uh, during their lifetime. It's an interesting area to explore. Well, I don't draw any firm conclusions about it other than I call it speculative in the book. But I think it's an interesting area worth exploring, especially when you got Martin Luther um, suggestive of um, perhaps this is OK. Well, and ultimately for me, I'm I'm really content to settle knowing that I, I can't know everything, and God is yeah. perfectly just and fair. And so yeah. there will be no one who will get an unfair deal from God. Right. And however okay. he's going to work that out, I'm, I'm sort of satisfied to just trust him. I think you know, I've been thinking so much about faith because, you know, we yeah. talk about faith being like this active trust. It's, and it's, it's salvific, but also we think about, you know, when you read the Old Testament and there's something that kind of bothers you or you're, there's a doctrine of hell that you're like, I don't, I, it, I can't make sense of this. Ultimately, there are areas where, and it's not a blind trust, it's not a blind faith. Yeah. You have evidence. Right. There's tons of reasons to trust yes. the goodness, fairness, and justice of God when it comes to these areas. And so I'm, I'm content to, to just trust him and know that he will be fair with absolutely yeah. everyone. And I think that that's what brings me a lot of peace at the end of the day when I start to think about these things too absolutely. deeply. And it's just like too much for the human mind or something. I think that's a great mindset to have. Um, you know, we have evidence that God is loving. We have evidence he's just. We got evidence he's gracious. Um, and, and, you know, we look at all these attributes of God and we say, you know what? I think I can trust him above me uh, yeah. in terms of judging people and, and um, um, you know, um, um, laying out a future that makes sense to everybody. And as I say, I think we'll see it in the mm -hmm. end. I think yeah. We'll all recognize, oh, that 
ultimately is fair and just. And speaking of his goodness and his love and justice and all of these things, let's talk a little bit about heaven, because I remember also from that traveling church play that heaven, you know, hell was portrayed a certain way, but heaven, it looked horrible to me. It was all these white shiny curtains and like aluminum or they looked like tinfoil belts and everybody was wearing white robes and it looked super boring and sterile. It looked like a hospital room. And I think that sometimes when I, even I hear atheists say something about how could God send people to hell, my first question to them I want to ask is, what do you think heaven is that you think you want to go there? And so what is heaven, Lee? You know, that's so great. Uh, I'm kind of glad I missed all these uh, church plays when I was a kid. They really did a number on me. Like, really did a number on me, I'm telling you. (laughs) That's awesome. I, uh, um, you know, I interviewed for my book Scott McKnight, who's a well known um, uh, Christian theologian and pastor. And um, he pointed out that this idea of a, uh, that we're ghostly souls somehow floating in the clouds, that this is a disembodied experience. Um, is not consistent with what the Bible talks about. I'll read you what he told me because I think it's powerful. He said, um, um, he said, Lee, heaven is the complete renewal of our world, a very earthy, physical place, not just for spirits or souls, but for resurrected bodies designed for the kingdom of God. John says in Revelation, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and first earth had passed away. He said, heaven will resemble our present earth I mean, we see in Isaiah and we see in Revelation, you know, the valleys and animals and and so forth. But it would be a transformed place for a transformed people. All of creation will be set free to turn to God in praise. It will be creation on steroids, the way it was designed to be. He said the Hebrew word for good is tov, T-O-V. So whatever is truly tov about our world today will be enhanced in the new heaven and new earth. It will be a place of celebration and music and songs and festivals and festivities. And then since we're both from Chicago, he added to me with a wink, he said, and in heaven, most people don't know this, but in heaven every year, the Chicago Cubs will win the World Series. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) I love that. That's so good. That is great. Well, in a moment, we're going to be going into our Patreon-only supporter portion of the interview. And basically what that is, is we have a sweet little community on Facebook of Patreon supporters who ask very specific questions of the guests. So it's kind of like an after party. It's a little hangout time, just a few minutes, where you get to ask my guest specific questions that you want to know about. And so if you want to join us, you can go to patreon.com slash Alisa Childers, and you can take a look at the different tiers and select the tier that will get you into the Facebook group and get you the bonus episode. Uh, People really love their bonus episodes where we get to ask those fun questions. So definitely check that out, patreon.com slash Alisa Childers. But Lee, as we close out this portion of our our interview, I want to give you the last word. Um, You know, you mentioned before we came on the air, just this this great quote from Louis uh, Palau from the book. If you want to talk about that, I'd love for you to just leave our listeners with some encouragement. We've This has kind of been a heavy topic, talking about hell and, and all of yeah. these things, but there's so much hope. And yeah. I, I'd love if you could just leave us with a good word of hope tonight. Yeah, I wanted to do a chapter in my book about a great Christian who was about to enter into heaven. And so I went to spend the day with Luis Palau, one of the great evangelists in the world. He had shared his faith with a billion people during his lifetime through his festivals and um, various ministries. 
Um, great man of God, one of my heroes and one of my friends. And uh, so I went and I spent the, he had stage four cancer. He only had a short time to live. In fact, mine was the last interview before he died. And so I went out to his home in Portland with him and his wife and spent the day. And so I have a chapter on what he says about, you know, he knew he was just about to pass into heaven. And I tell you, it's a powerful chapter. Uh, but the one thing he said that I think would be an encouragement, I hope it's an encouragement to you personally, Elisa, uh, and also to your listeners and viewers. Um, he looked at me and he said, you know, Lee, when you get to the end of your life and all is said and done, you will never regret being courageous for Christ. Love that. And I thought that's that's powerful. You'll never you get to the end, you look back and you look at those moments when you took a risk to get into a spiritual conversation to share Jesus. You took a risk by writing a book, correcting uh, trends in the theology that are hurting our church. You take a risk in speaking out um, for what's right and true and just and and biblical. And and Luis is saying, you get to the end of your life, you're going to look back and say, I don't regret having been courageous for Christ. Uh, I thought that was powerful and encouraged me. I hope it encourages all your listeners as well. Well, that's a good word. I want to thank my guest, Lee Strobel, for joining me for this episode. Uh, if you are listening on audio platforms like iTunes or Google or Spotify, it helps so much if you go leave a five-star review. Uh, it just helps it, it kind of cues those companies to say, okay, people want to know about this. They like it. So they'll put it into the news feeds of more people. If you saw this post on social media, clicking like and share is so helpful. If you're watching on YouTube, clicking like, subscribe and subscribe and also click that bell icon because then you'll be notified every time we release a new video. Thank you so much for watching and we'll see you next time. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.